Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related, from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and everything in between. I highly suggest checking them out after you finish listening to this episode here. Speaking of today's episode, I have a big one for you. It's not going to be super long, it's not going to be crazy in depth, but I want to talk to you about one of the most infamous cases in Canadian criminal history. Yes, we're going back to some true crime stuff here. This involves a pig farmer out west and the disappearances of a shit ton of women. It's terrifying. It's disgusting. It's been covered in media and parodied, I guess you could say, in various TV shows over the years as well. This is the case of Robert Picton. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. When people think of Canada, they usually think of nice, polite, friendly people, igloos, cold weather, that sort of stuff. Maple syrup. How do I forget maple syrup? We have a reserve of like 50 billion tons or some bullshit like that. But what you don't often think of is murder serial killers, vile human beings that take other people's lives just for the fun of it. Just because we're the friendly neighbors to the north doesn't mean we don't have a few skeletons in our closet as well. Of course, most people know about the Ken and Barbie killers, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Then there's the piece of shit Luca Magnata, who was responsible for an international manhunt. Yeah, Canada isn't the safest or best place to live at all times. We do have pieces of shit up here too, don't worry. So if you live in America, take some solace in the fact that we suck too in Canada. But today we're going to be talking about Robert Picton, maybe the most notorious, the most vile human being to ever grace Canadian soil in recent memory. I'm not talking about the colonial days where, you know, people came over and killed hundreds of thousands of Native Americans or whatever the case might be. We're talking about strictly serial killers here. This guy was a bad one. And a lot of this information is going to come from the Canadian Encyclopedia. I've used this resource before for the Highway of Tears, and it's a great, great reference. I highly suggest looking up anything you want on there about Canadian crime. It's really, really cool. But what's not cool is Robert Picton. Now, between 1978 and 2001, at least 65 women disappeared from Vancouver's downtown east side. So I know right now you're thinking, holy shit, this guy killed 65 women. Well, maybe not. We'll get into what happened just a little bit later, but let's get on to who Robert Picton was and what he was about and the ugh, pig farm that he operated. Now, Robert William Willie Picton was born in 1949, was raised on a family-operated pig farm in Port Coquitlam in British Columbia. Picton and his siblings sold most of the property for urban development, reducing the farm from 6.5 hectares. Picton maintained a small-scale livestock operation on the farm. He also received a share of the proceeds from the real estate transactions and was partner with his brother David in a salvage company. Picton naturally was a socially awkward man who was known to have exhibited strange behaviors. He lived alone in a trailer on the farm property. In 1996, the Picton brothers started the Piggy's Palace Good Time Society. 
It was federally registered charity with an alleged mandate to raise funds for service organizations through events such as dances and shows. Now, because this is Canada and we like our peace and quiet, neighbors complained of rowdiness, drug use, drunkenness, and noise. You know, all the fun stuff that makes parties a party. Sometimes the parties were attended by as many as 1,700 people, including bikers and sex trade workers from the downtown east side. In 2000, the city of Port Coquitlam shut Piggy's Palace down. Now, it's important to note that Vancouver's downtown east side neighborhood is known for its high rates of poverty, homelessness, open drug use, and prostitution. In the late 1990s, 80% of the girls and women working in the sex trade came from outside of Vancouver. Some had no contact with their family for years. A survey of 183 sex trade workers conducted by the Prostitution Alternatives Counseling and Education Society between 1999 and 2001 revealed that acts of violence against these women were really quite frequent. They were subjected to robberies, beatings, kidnappings, and forced confinement. They showed a, quote, gulf between acts of violence suffered and acts of violence reported. The findings also indicated that the women had profound distrust in police and other authorities. Mr. Picton became very familiar with the downtown east side through visits to a rendering plant located in the vicinity. This is where he would dispose of animal waste and parts. He would cruise the 10-block strip called the Low Track, offer women money and drugs, and often would take them back to his farm. In 1978, a joint RCMP and Vancouver Police Department Missing Women's Task Force began. That is a mouthful. And one of the first things they did was compile a list of missing women. The earliest case on the list connected to Picton was that of Diana Melnick, and she was last seen on December 22nd, 1995. And the most recent case connected to Picton on the list, and one of the six murders for which he may or may not have been convicted, was that of Mona Wilson, last seen in November of 2001. Of the 26 disappearances officially attributed to Picton, one occurred in 1995, one occurred in 1996, six in 1997, four in 1998, five in 1999, and two in 2000. There were also seven in 2001. Other disappearances before and during this time period were not officially connected to Picton due to a lack of evidence. Because of the marginalized lifestyle and transient habits of the victims and other people in the downtown east side, disappearances were often unnoticed and unreported. The disappearance of Sherry Rail, who vanished in 1984, was not reported for over three years. In 1987, the RCMP set up a special team to investigate the unsolved murders and disappearances of sex trade workers. It was disbanded in 1989 due to limited progress. Now, over the years, the rate of disappearances escalated, and rumors of a serial killer began to circulate the downtown east side. Think of Jack the Ripper. Sex trade workers began walking the low track in groups and writing down the license plate numbers of cars that picked women up, but the disappearances still continued. In 1991, the families of missing women, along with the Advocates for Sex Trade Workers, established an annual Valentine's Day Remembrance Walk as a memorial to murdered and missing victims. They demanded a thorough investigation, but the police response was obviously sluggish. The Vancouver police refused to say that a serial killer was at work, or even consider that the missing women were dead. There were no bodies to warrant an investigation that would be a strain on police resources. To police, it seemed reasonable to presume that some of the women had moved away 
and others had died from drug overdoses, which, you know, means they're not important enough to look into. God, 1980s and 1990s police suck, man. Jesus. There were complaints of police apathy, particularly from the Vancouver Sun newspaper. It accused the police of giving low priority to crimes committed against sex trade workers. The Vancouver Police Department was also hampered by its reluctance to adopt newly emerging methods of investigation, such as psychological criminal profiling and geoprofiling. Also, good on you, Vancouver son. Because, I mean, yeah, call the police out when they're pieces of shit. They do a lot of good work, but they also suck. So, you know, when they suck, they need to know they suck. But when they're good, they need to know they're good. It goes both ways. Many of the missing women were also indigenous. This goes back to the Highway of Tears. Same sort of thing. A lot of indigenous women were missing in that area of the country out west, anyway. As the Picton case unfolded with its many indigenous victims, it focused public attention on the wider issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in Canada. This in turn led to a national inquiry by the government beginning in 2016. On March 22nd, 1997, a woman Picton had taken to his farm fought back when he tried to handcuff her. She seized a kitchen knife, and in the struggle, both received serious stab wounds. The woman ran down the road and waved down a car whose occupants called an ambulance. She was taken to Royal Columbian Hospital in New Westminster. While the woman was undergoing emergency surgery, Picton was receiving treatments for his injury in the same hospital. An orderly found a key in his pocket that fit the handcuffs on the woman's wrists. Picton was arrested and charged with attempted murder, assault with a weapon, and forcible confinement. The charges were stayed and eventually dropped because the woman, whose name was placed under protection from a publication banned by the courts, was not considered a competent witness due to drug addiction. Picton claimed she was a hitchhiker who had attacked him. Of course they're gonna believe that story. She was fucking stabbed with handcuffs on. But yeah, no, she attacked him and then put handcuffs on herself and then stabbed herself. And then Robert Picton, well, I, I don't understand. How do you believe that fucking story? That's ridiculous. Fuck that police department, man. Fuck the court. Ooh, I get angry when doing these cases. This is why I don't do them all that often. In the spring of 1999, an informant told the Vancouver police that a single mother and drug addict named Lynn Ellingson had seen a woman's body hanging in Picton's slaughterhouse. When questioned by police, Ellingson initially denied the story. Only much later did she admit that on March 20th, she had in fact seen the body. She did not report it because she feared Picton and depended on him for money for drugs. Early in 1999, Bill Hiscox, who worked for the Pictons, informed the RCMP that Lisa Yields, a close friend of Picton, had told Hiscox she had seen women's clothing purses, and identification papers at the pig farm. His cox believed that they were the property of missing women. Police questioned Yields, but she was uncooperative. It was the second time his cox had called the police about his suspicions, but they could not obtain a search warrant based on hearsay evidence. They required an eyewitness report of criminal activity or the existence of physical evidence itself. Now, in 2001, the Vancouver police and the RCMP formed Project Even-Handed. Why do they always come up with stupid-ass names? Anyway, a joint task force to investigate the women who went missing from downtown Eastside. In early 2002, Scott Chubb 
formerly employed by the Picton family as a truck driver, informed the RCMP in Port Coquitlam that he had personally seen illegal guns in Picton's trailer. That information met the official requirement for a search warrant. Finally, on February 5th, officers of the task force raided the pig farm. In addition to several illegal and unregistered guns, they found items connecting missing women to the property. Picton was arrested on weapons charges and then released on bail because why not? He was kept under surveillance and was not permitted to return to the pig farm while police conducted a thorough search under a second warrant. Among the evidence they discovered were handcuffs, women's clothing and shoes, jewelry, and an asthma inhaler prescribed to Serena Abbotsway, one of the missing women. DNA testing of blood found on the motorhome and in the property provided to be that of Mona Wilson. On February 22, 2002, Picton was rearrested and charged with two counts of murder. Eventually, a total of 26 murder charges were laid against him. While Picton was held in jail in Surrey, BC, he shared a cell with an undercover RCMP officer he believed to be another detainee. In their conversation, Picton said he had murdered 49 women and wanted to make it an even 50. Meanwhile, the pig farm became the largest crime scene in Canadian history. Investigators took 200,000 DNA samples and seized 600,000 exhibits. Archaeologists and forensic experts needed heavy equipment to sift through 383,000 cubic yards of soil in search of human remains. The cost of the investigation? Well, that was an estimated $70 million. Picton's preliminary hearing to decide if there was enough evidence for the trial, which of course there was, lasted from January to July 2003. Due to the unprecedented volume and complexity of legal issues that had to be litigated, his trial on the first six charges did not begin until January 22nd, 2007, and that took place in New Westminster, BC. On December 9th, 2007, Picton was found guilty by a jury on six counts of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in a federal penitentiary with no possibility of parole for 25 years. These convictions were upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada in 2010. Although Picton claimed to have murdered 49 women, he was only charged with the murder of 26, who could be identified with evidence found on the pig farm, plus one unidentified woman whose remains were also found, who was given the name Jane Doe. The Jane Doe charge was eventually dismissed by the court because of lack of information about her identity and the time of her death, because that matters. I mean, of course it matters who she was, but it really shouldn't matter if he gets charged with her death. Just because it's an unknown person doesn't mean she wasn't murdered by him. God, sometimes the Canadian legal system is stupid as fuck. After Picton was convicted of six charges on the initial trial, BC Crown prosecutors kept open the possibility of trying Picton on the other 20 charges at a later date. However, on the 4th of August 2010, prosecutors announced they would not proceed on the 20 charges. They said a second trial, even if further convictions were achieved, would not add anything to Picton's punishment, which was already at the maximum under Canadian law. The decision angered some of the families of the 20 victims. Others said that they were relieved at being spared the expense of another long and difficult trial. During his time in prison, Picton tried to write a book and put it on Amazon, but people were like, go to fucking hell, you're not making a cent off of any of this. So it was taken down. Rightfully so, I'm not going to say the name of the book. I don't want you to look for it. Don't support anything that this asshole has ever done. One of the best things to come from this whole kerfluffle, I guess you could call it, of police in action was a provincial government inquiry. 
and it was established to examine the Picton case and how it was handled by authorities. Spoiler alert, very poorly. In December 2012, the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry issued its final report entitled Forsaken, another great name for a official legal thing. <laughs> anyway, the inquiry said blatant failures by police, including inept criminal investigative work, compounded by police and societal prejudice against sex trade workers and indigenous women, had led to a, quote, tragedy of epic proportions. Once again, the shitty police work was being called out publicly good. In fact, McLean's, who is one of the biggest magazines in Canada, wrote an article called RCMP, A Royal Canadian Disgrace. Hmm, I should get a couple of ruffled feathers going. The inquiry issued 63 recommendations, including the creation of a Greater Vancouver Regional Police Force to allow more effective, less fragmented police cooperation. It also called for adequate funding for emergency shelters for women in the sex trade and for compensation for the children of the missing women. Following the report, the Vancouver Police Department implemented several policies and procedural changes to its missing persons investigation. The missing persons unit was made a regular part of the police department. Investigations are required to begin without delay. Family members are advised regularly and consulted before the release of information. And the case file is kept open until the missing person is located. So that's a brief summary of the Robert Picton case. But I want to go into a little bit more detail, but we have run out of time for today. So next week, we're going to look at the trial, the victims, and some little nitpicky details that I kind of left out today for suspense purposes. Because I want you to come back and listen. And I went to radio school, and that's how you do it. You leave them on a cliffhanger, so you come back next week. <laughs> but that is going to do it for me this week. My name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Any five-star reviews will be read out on the show, so it's a great way to get a shout-out. But I know a lot of you don't use Apple products, so good for you. And there aren't really other ways to leave reviews that I can see really easily anyway. So I do appreciate you just listening. You can follow along on social media on Twitter at HorrorShotsProd is in production, on Instagram at OminousOriginsPod, or on Facebook at HorrorShots. So until next week when we continue our look into Robert Willie Picton, the asshole of Canada. <laughs>